Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. I'm your host, Jokan Gonzalez, and today we have a truly captivating guest who is a prolific author, renowned science writer, and an expert in his field. With an impressive 14 books under his belt, including his latest work, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. He delves into the depths of scientific exploration and invites us to question the very existence of life itself. As a writer of the acclaimed Origins column for the New York Times, he has earned numerous accolades throughout his career and his exceptional work has been recognized with prestigious awards including the esteemed Stephen Jay Gould Prize presented by the Society for Study on Evolution. It comes as no surprise that his books have received widespread acclaim. Three of his literary creations have been named Notable Books of the Year by the New York Times Book Review, showcasing his remarkable ability to engage readers with his insightful and thought-provoking narratives. One particular gem, she has her mother's laugh, went on to win numerous awards and was also hailed as the best science book of 2018 by the Guardian. Additionally, as a professor at Yale University, he imparts his vast knowledge to the next generation of curious minds, nurturing the spirit of scientific inquiry. What sets him truly apart is the extraordinary honor of having both a species of tapeworm and an asteroid named after him. So here at Indian Genes, we now very proudly present a remarkable gentleman in this exclusive interview, none other than Carl Zimmer. So Carl from everyone here in India and Indian Genes, a very very big welcome to you. Thank you so much for sparing some of your time. I know you are a very busy man, but speaking to all of us here in India, we have a lot of students who probably are going to take a lot away from what you are going to be saying today. We also have a lot of non-experts here. So this is more of a platform where we get to hear from notable speakers like you, clarify a lot of our doubts. So once again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So my question to you is when I was growing up there was this song in 1984 I think it was 1984 by a band called Opus and the name of that song it was a very popular song is life is life so have we have you and have all of us collectively moved forward from there or is this song still very relevant <laughs> well um I, i i think that's a that's a pretty good definition um you know there's something that we refer to as life and we all kind of feel like we know what it is So, you know, that's good enough for just conversation, but um, you know, as 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 something that, you know, that scientists study and can define, um, we're actually not able to define it in in a way that scientists all agree on. You know, scientists have come up with a lot of definitions. Um, you can it's very easy to find them. Uh and uh there are hundreds of them. Literally hundreds. and you know there are new ones that pop up every year uh and it doesn't seem like they're converging it doesn't seem like they're narrowing down to just one 
Um, and that I think actually like speaks to something profound, uh, uh, about life and how we should go about trying to understand something like life. True. And I think the, the best thing to try to do that, like you have quoted, uh, in your book, because we're trying to, you what you're trying to do is the search for what it means to be alive. And when you say the search for what it means to be alive, that to me looks like from our perspective, from somebody who is metacognitive, because that's what we are studying. But from, for example, an animal or, for example, any other living being, what it means to be alive could be something totally different, right? Yeah, I mean, I I, th I do think that for us, when we think about our own lives, um, we do think about that um, in terms of our consciousness, uh, and and you know that uh, that our brains are giving us a sense of ourselves and an awareness of reality around us. Um, but you know, I think that that's a bit of a there's a bit of a logical error there. You know, like you you do need to be alive as a human being to be conscious. I think what we can all agree, that's not a very controversial thing to say. Um, I'm yeah. not so sure that, you know, a mushroom is alive. I'm sorry. I'm not so sure a mushroom is conscious. Sorry, but it's definitely alive. It definitely does mm. all the kinds of things that we think of as being uh, essential for life. So, um, so once we start to, to, uh, get outside of ourselves and our day-to-day -day lives, things get um, challenging. Um, and even, you know, even for ourselves, you know, I mean, uh, it, it can be surprisingly hard to really uh, come up with a, a, a clear, consistent notion of, of the boundaries of our own lives when, when our own lives begin and end. Uh, and, um, you know, this, and this, uh, so this this is a question that has legal importance, you know. Um, you know, in a, in a hospital where somebody has had a, a massive brain injury and can be only kept alive with a ventilator, and there's no brain activity, like, how do we deal with that in terms of whether that mm. person is is alive or not? Um, and uh, you know, then the, this is this is also a, you know a profound question for our search for, for life in the universe. Are we alone? I mean, can there be a bigger question than that? But if we're not even agreeing on what life is, uh, then how can we go and try to look for it elsewhere? True. And you brought up consciousness, and I don't know if you're, you're aware, but there's this latest bet. It seems to have been a 25-year-old science bet between Christopher Coe and David Chalmers, where yeah, they betted I was actually, 25 years ago. Saying, yeah, I actually, I, I, that they actually met uh, in New York to revisit the bet. Um, and so this was a bet between this neuroscientist, Christopher Cook, and this philosopher, David Chalmers, um, that it would be possible. They made the bet 25 years ago, and they, and Christopher Cook was betting that within 25 years, scientists would find what are called the, the neural correlates of consciousness. In other words, there's some sort of activity in the brain that you can associate with consciousness. Uh, and so I actually uh, was able to make it to this event. I was there, and 
you know, Whoa. and they were, they were on stage and it was a packed house. It was like 800 people were at this auditorium at New York university. And, uh, it was, it was a whole lot of fun. And, you know, they were, they were recalling what it was like 25 years ago when Christoph Koch, you know, made this bet. And, you know, and at the time, there, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm about some of the new brain technologies, you know, fMRI scans and things like that. And uh, the philosopher, David Chalmers, was like, well, he was going to take the other side of the bet. He was skeptical, um, because mm. partly because he just felt like we know so little about how the brain works and, you know, what we, we'd still know so little about consciousness. So how can we then find a signature in the brain of consciousness when we have so much left to learn. So that was the bet. And a whole lot of things have happened since then. And um, uh, a lot of theories have come out, very sophisticated theories of consciousness that are based on lots and lots of experiments. Um, the problem is that the people who come up with these theories, they go and do their experiments and they say, oh, look, my experiments support my theory. And they do another experiment and they keep going and going and going. But like, these people with these different theories, like they never seem to be converging and saying like, oh, actually that theory is wrong and this one's right. I think there are like 40 theories of consciousness now out there. It's kind of like yeah. life, you know, it's like, it's just one of these things that just uh, encourages this, this kind of uh, proliferation. So, um, so these science, so what happened was that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, five years ago, uh, no, uh, actually six years ago now, um, Christoph Koch and David Chalmers brought a whole bunch of uh, scientists involved with two leading theories, brought them together, and they said, okay, let's do an experiment where each of these theories makes different predictions. And maybe we can see if one of them wins out over the other. And uh, mm -hmm. so they, they, it's a huge effort um, involved, over 250 volunteers having their brains scanned. Sometimes people were having even having implants in uh, uh, electrodes implanted in their brains and so on. And they gave, they showed the results and the results were that, well, um, in some of the ex, uh, experiments, it looked like one of the theories was doing better than the other and other experiments, it looked like the second theory was doing better. So <laughs> they, yeah, Nobody was willing to, to, to back down. No one's willing to say like, your theory's right, mine's wrong. There's more, they're, they're gonna show more of these experiments coming up, um, but uh, it was fascinating. And, and at the end of the night, just to wrap this up, uh, is that, that, uh, that Christoph Koch, the, 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 the bet had been the winner would get a case of uh, vintage wine. And at the end of the <laughs> evening, Christoph Koch walked out with a box full of bottles of wine and gave them to David Chalmers and uh, said, we don't have a neur the neural correlates of consciousness yet, clearly. We don't have some clear-cut signal you can see in the brain that you know is related to the experience of consciousness. We don't know where it is yet. We don't know what it is yet. But then he doubled down. He said, I'll make you another bet. Double or nothing in the next 25 years, we'll do it. So they shook again. So the bet lives on. That's such a brilliant story, in fact. And, and I'm really happy that you were actually there. But And from the beginning, do you think that you, whenever you pit, uh, I mean, the idea that I can see here is, you know, materialism against an idealist, there's always, it's always going to be very difficult to come out with one winner because somebody or someone is going to go back to first principle 
and something would have. So I don't know if it's going to be that easy ever. Um, th- that's a good, well, you know, it, it, I think the, well, so Christoph Koch, he's a neuroscientist at the Allen Institute in Seattle. Um, and he is, uh, 67 now. So, um, when he was a young neuroscientist starting out, he actually worked with Francis Crick. So Francis Crick, people may recall, won the Nobel Prize for his role in figuring out the structure and the function of DNA way back in mm-hmm. 1962. But actually, like late in life, Crick decided that he wanted to do for consciousness what he had done for heredity. In other words, um, you know, heredity had been a very mysterious phenomenon in the early 20th century. And, you know, people would say, look, well, it seems like there's something that's passed, you know, traits are influenced by something passed down through the generations. And we think that we're, we think it's something we're going to call a gene, but they didn't know what genes were. They didn't know what they were made of. <clears throat> and so, so it almost got quite mystical, you know, the, the way people would talk about heredity. And Crick was just like, look, let's just, let's just, figure out, you know, the basis of this. And, you know, what he figured out with the help of lots of other people is that genes are encoded in DNA and that the information encoded in DNA is read out by molecules in our cells. Uh, And there's there's a genetic code, which Crick played a big part in figuring out, which translates the language of our genes into the structure of proteins. There you go. I mean, it's 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 no one knew that, before, you know, in full before the 1960s. But once you know it, it's beautiful in its simplicity. So Crick believed there was something about consciousness that would be equally beautiful and simple. And so he and Coke, right. he and Coke, we, 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 you know, we're like, okay, let's start just by seeing if we can, you know, design experiments, real experiments. Not, we don't. We're not going to leave it to the philosophers anymore. We're going to do experiments that can at least give us a toehold, a grip uh, on on what consciousness is, and um, and so um, that was really, you know, very that was very influential. I mean, there are lots of experiments now that people do, really trying to make sense of consciousness now, and they're well designed experiments. They're experiments that happen in all sorts of settings. Um, there are experiments, you know, where People have been diagnosed in a vegetative state. They're completely unresponsive. They're in comas. Well, but are are they just uncommunicative? Maybe they're conscious. And so there actually are now tests that people are developing to see if you can actually like judge whether people actually are conscious. So, um, you know, but these theories do like have a different, you know, they a lot of them are sort of based on, there are different approaches, different kinds of philosophy towards this whole question of the mind. And so, you know, some people have questioned whether it is this kind of adversarial collaboration, as it's called, where you have advocates of two theories agree to work together. It's not clear. It's not necessarily always. These theories have to be very similar, have to be, in other words, they have to have, be based on a lot of the same assumptions in order for this whole process to work. Um, and so there are some skeptics who are wondering whether this whole thing will will work. But you know, we'll see. This is the first. This is the first. Uh, these are the first results from this this kind of um, 
adversarial collaboration project that's going on. And actually, they're going to be a whole lot more. There, there are going to be other theories that are going to be tested against each other in the years to come. It's going to be fascinating. True. Yes, it's definitely going to be fascinating. And like you said, this just may be the early stages of us getting to that and your favorite topic of, of life, because we went through that and we went through a lot of early stage <laughs> experiments or things that we thought, right? It, it started with radium, which was, you use the word mystic, but radium seemed to have, or radioactivity was, was very interesting at one time. And then later on, it, I, I think it was before that, before radium, it was also uranium or uranium salts. So maybe you want to tell us the initial stages of the same thing with consciousness, but when people actually started looking for what life actually was, wasn't it something similar with these kind of uh, theories coming up? In the 19th century, scientists started using microscopes and chemistry to figure out what living tissue was made of. They found cells, and inside cells they found proteins and other substances, and so that led them to say like, well, um, there doesn't seem to be, you know, physically like some difference between living matter and non-living matter. It just maybe it's somehow it's its arrangement or maybe there's just, you know, how is it that, uh, you know, these, you know, atoms of nitrogen and carbon and so on produce something that's alive. Uh, I, I opened my book Life's Edge with a, a really remarkable episode where a physicist in the early 1900s uh, thought maybe the newly discovered phenomenon of radioactivity was the answer to the mystery. So he believed that if you took a radioactive element like radium, you could use that actually to uh, create life, a sort of Frankenstein's monster. Um, and he actually performed experiments where he took, you know, a sort of a boiled beef broth that just contained just bits of protein and put radium in it and claimed that cells uh, uh, spontaneously emerged from it. Uh, he called these radiobes. And at the time, he was uh, quite celebrated for it. He became incredibly famous uh, worldwide. Um, of course, uh, it turned out he was wrong, and he, he plunged into obscurity again in a, in a very tragic fall. Um, and I, and I, I think his story, this scientist named John Butler Burke, I think it tells you about um, the 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 attraction that scientists have to this mystery of what is life uh, and the dangers that it poses because um, people often end up being very, very wrong. And if you're wrong, like you said, the reaction can be from the community as well can not be very pleasing right sure i mean uh you know the, the carl sagan once famously said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and you know there's nothing more extraordinary than claiming that you have figured out the secret of life and then you can make it from scratch um but, you know, it is also the sort of thing that we all are curious about. And that's why, um, you know, all, all of these attempts to to understand life attract a huge amount of attention from the public as a whole. Um, there's no there's no bigger question. Uh, and but uh, it, it is a it's a question we haven't answered yet. True, true. But just correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know 
the final fact on this, but there was this Miller-Urey experiment, if I'm not mistaken, and I did, or we did read reports that, yes, there was something interesting in the results of the experiment. So maybe you can clarify for us, was there any anything interesting at the end of those experiments and did we reach any conclusion? So the Miller-Urey experiments were uh, carried out uh, in the 50s by Stanley Miller, um, a, a researcher in California, and, um, and he was working with his uh, uh, mentor, Harold Urey, a Nobel Prize winning chemist. And um, what Miller was, was doing was he was trying to test a hypothesis about how life began on Earth. Uh, so he was not trying to make life entirely from scratch, but he was trying to understand whether uh, the chemistry in the atmosphere of the early Earth could have produced, could have enabled chemical reactions that could have produced some of the building blocks of life. Mm. And to that extent, his, his experiment, it was a, really one of the first of its kind, his experiment was uh, a huge success because he did actually produce... You know, he basically took what he believed was, you know, the what was in the early atmosphere on Earth, and then you know ran sparks through it as if that was lightning, and um, was able to produce all sorts of very interesting organic compounds. Now it's a long way from those organic compounds to a cell that can um, feed and you know keep itself stable and grow and reproduce, but. Still, it was a it was one of the most important ex experiments in the twentieth century. Mm. And just to get back to what you said, what this experiment was doing was trying to figure out whether all the ingredients of life come together to form life, for example. And then you you also said that he was not looking at how life formed itself. But would is about not the same things because does that not have to happen for this to come together? Or is there another way of looking at how life actually started? Well, uh, Miller was looking at a sort of a at a very big theory for the origin of life, which which held that you know the, when the Earth formed about four point six billion years ago, um, it. it, it it had, you know, an atmosphere with certain compounds in it. Um, it. It was, you know, at a certain temperature, a certain pH. Um, there was an ocean that was beginning to form. Um, so presumably there was no, you know, there was no life there to begin with. So the question is, could, could the building blocks of life start to form on the early Earth? And then once they had formed, were there conditions in which they could uh, gradually self-organize into the first forms of life. So that's a big theory, and there are a lot of different mm. pieces to it. So, you know, Stanley Miller was really just taking, zeroing in on one part of it, an important part, but just one part. So, so what Miller's experiment was suggesting was like, on that early Earth, you'd have, you know, lightning storms and so on. And that chemistry that took place could actually start to produce some of the uh, ingredients that you find in, in living, in life, uh, as we know it. Um, 
Now, there have been a lot of other scientists who have looked at other parts of the theory um, and, and things, you know, the whole area, the question of origin of life has a huge amount of research that's gone into it. And things are different now than they were then in the sense that like the, you know, the early earthy atmosphere, you know, scientists have a better idea of what was actually in it. Um, so when you start to do these experiments, you start from a different starting point. Um, and, uh, you know, scientists have been, um, zeroing in on other parts of that theory. Like, well, um, could you, for example, get genetic molecules to form, um, uh, before there were cells that could contain them? And there's some remarkable experiments I write about in my book where it looks like, you know, actually it does look as if, uh, you know, the, um, the molecule RNA does seem to be able to, to grow and to get replicated in a very crude way um, without needing cells for, the, for it to do it. So there are, you know, there are, I, I, we certainly don't have the full story of how life began all worked out. I don't know if we ever will. I mean, no, but, um, but there are a lot more pieces to the puzzle now than there were back then. True. And it's very interesting when, and especially in your book, the way you've put it across and you've gone through the, the initial stages and I'm still there at the moment. And that, that got me thinking as well, because you did mention about these early stages. And I think you spoke a lot, uh, you also spoke or you covered uh, protoplasm. And I was trying to understand whether this was the early stage you were talking about or whether the protoplasm that you were talking about was within the cell because we also thought about some kind of substance that permeated across the globe or whether it was in the oceans if i'm not sure right and mm -hmm. these are two different things that uh, were very interesting that i i read yeah so um so as Scientists started to look inside of cells and try to figure out what was in there. Um, they they realized that cells contain um, a lot of different molecules inside inside their membranes uh, or their walls, and but they seem to be sort of um, encased in a sort of almost a jelly-like substance, and. Um, this came to be known as a protoplasm. Um, so there was this feeling that, you know, that, uh, th that this jelly-like substance was really like, that was the, the, the primordial stuff of life. Because you can find it in our cells, you can find it in a plant cells, you can find it inside bacteria, it's everywhere. So, th so there was a feeling, you know, I mentioned that there was this vital force that people were talking about. So some people thought somehow protoplasm contained this mysterious vital force. And uh, so, so that was kind of the thinking that people had in the mid-1800s. This was also right at the time where there were uh, early oceanographic voyage, research voyages starting. This is really the first time that that um, sort of the modern science of oceanography was getting started. And so you had these ships that would go out and they would be throwing down uh, probes to, to scoop up um, 
samples from the seafloor, you know, way, way, way down, you know, a mile or more underwater. And when they would bring it up and scientists would analyze it, they would, it looked as if there was a sort of a jelly-like substance in there. And people say, my goodness, this is protoplasm. This, this is, and they would say like, well, it looks as if there's, this protoplasm is forming a kind of a, a continuous carpet on the seafloor, um, you know, and, and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't really in cells. It was just somehow just laid out. And um, so the, you know, one of the greatest biologists of the 19th century, Thomas Huxley, he looked at this and he said, well, this is actually a living thing. This is, this needs its own name. He gave it a name. He called it Bathybius. And um so, so suddenly, like when people are trying to understand what is life and trying to understand how did life begin, where's the beginning of evolution, suddenly it seemed like this was it, Bathybius. It's, it's there. It's still there. It's lurking around on the seafloor. Um, it, it, it turned out that there was just this was all uh, wrong. <laughs> it was it was bad chemistry that that people were carrying out, and Huxley was fooled, um, and and it was very embarrassing for him. But to his credit, as soon as his colleague said, "I think I think you made a mistake," he immediately just brought that to the public's attention. He he got those results published as quickly as he could, and he said, "Well, you know, I uh, this this is my mistake," um, and so. You know, so I think that's one of the reasons why Thomas Huxley is still, you know, uh, admired today, whereas some other people who who dabbled in the question of what is life have plunged into obscurity. Mm. No, that's such an amazing story, and l like you mentioned, what Huxley did at the end there probably did so much more for science in the long run, and held up the respect that we have for the scientific method because no matter what if you can put your hand up there and say, okay, this is what I thought, but the facts just don't line up, and now I am wrong. That that itself for a person in the spotlight is very difficult to do. And I think because of people like him and because of situations or events that have happened in the past, that's why all of us believe in it. But uh, I think that's a very difficult thing to do, but also at the other end, that's why all of us, you know, we put our trust and faith in it. Um, and this was, you know, this was, uh, at the time where, you know, some of the rules of modern science were really being worked out, you know, how, how, how does a community of scientists try to, uh, learn about the world? How, you know, what, it, what is the nature of the scientific method of making a hypothesis of coming up with a good experiment? How do you share those results? Um, how do you decide whether those results support or weaken a hypothesis and so on? Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to go back and to see that starting to play out, uh, with these, with these questions about what is life. True. And in all your research, when you looked at these origins and we moved past the initial cells, did the Cambrian explosion or what we've heard of at that time where we moved from probably singular cells to much more complex organisms all of a sudden. Did you find or do you find that interesting at all? Or do you think it was, there is something more we need to understand about it? 
Um, the, you know, the, the Cambrian explosion is a, is a really fascinating, you know, case study in really the history of science. Um, because, you know, sometimes uh, something looks a certain way because scientists have only gotten a small amount of information about it. And as they get more information, it changes. So, um, so when, you know, Charles Darwin was working on his theory of evolution, you know, he, he looked very much to uh, geology and paleontology and the fossil record to try to uh, to see to see if it fit his idea that that life evolved, that new species evolved from old ones uh, through a gradual process, including natural selection. And so when he looked at the fossil record, um, he saw lots of fossils and he saw a lot of good evidence that was consistent with his theory. Um, but you know, when you looked when he looked at the layers of rocks, he was a very good geologist. Um, basically, uh, you, go, you go down to the Cambrian, uh, this period of time, uh, <coughs> which had fossils, lots of animal fossils. But below that, in the older rocks, no one had found any animal fossils. Uh, and so, um, so he said, "Well, you know, I mean, this there could be a lot of reasons for this. Um, you know, fossils don't. You know, why? You know." Fossils will get preserved in certain conditions and get destroyed in other conditions. Um, it's also, you know, we only know the fossil record because people have looked, gone out and looked for it. And so we just have to keep looking as well. Uh, he, he, he likened it to like a, a vast, incomplete museum, the fossil record. Um, so that was, you know, o over 150 years ago. Uh, so... Now, you know, so, so, um, so at the time, the, you know, oldest animal fossils were, you know, maybe five, 550 million years old, something like that. So now we found, paleontologists have found much older animals, pre-Cambrian animals. So we, the, the, the fossils are there. Uh, mm. In addition, um, there are lots and lots of pre-Cambrian fossils of, of other forms of life, of, of algae, and of bacteria. Um, in fact, you know, the oldest, um, uh, the old, the oldest, uh, you know, clearly accepted uh, evidence of bacteria is I think was about 3.4 billion years old now. Um, so that's, I mean, so that's like, you know, what, what is it? That's like seven or eight times older than the Cambrian. So the fossil record broadly defined is vast. And it turns out, like animals, you know, evolved pretty late. Um, now, what you know, what our scientists are are doing is they're 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 not just looking for like the the skeletons, the uh, or or the soft tissue of in fossils, but uh, chemical markers. Um, actually like you know living things they 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 make it have an unusual chemistry and some of those molecules get preserved in ancient rock and so scientists are actually finding some of those ancient biomarkers and um and you know it looks like there are some ancient biomarkers of animals like sponges that go way back I mean, I'd, I'd have to double check i think about 700 million years um there are biomarkers of protozoans that go back well over a billion years so 
So I had this very rich, um, much richer picture of the history of life. So, you know, initially it looked like the Cameron was this quote unquote explosion, but that Mm. was really just because uh, scientists had not yet really, really started to pull back the curtain on pre-Cambrian life. It's still very interesting what happened in the Cambrian because it's clear that uh, animals, so animals already existed at the start of the Cambrian. In the Cambrian, it seems like they diversified a lot. It seems mm. like a lot of the the different, you know, major groups of animals alive today got their start in the Cambrian. So why was that? Uh, and well, that's a good, you know, it's a tough uh, question. It's a good question. And there are a lot of uh, hypotheses that scientists are now testing. Um, it turns out that, you know, at the beginning of the Cambrian and a little before that was a very turbulent time in the in physical history of Earth. Um, lots of changes. And, you know, there might at some one point the Earth may have been entirely covered in ice. Uh, uh, there were massive swings in the amount of uh, oxygen in the ocean. So uh, these may all have played a role in driving the diversification of animals which were already there. Right. And interestingly, you brought up bacteria, and I've always wanted to ask somebody this, so I think you're the perfect person. So is bacteria life, according to you? Is Do yeah. you consider bacteria as, or does, does there have to be metabolism, or is there some other feature that you would say it's necessary for you to consider it as life? Well, I mean, I, I am not, you know, I, I am not the judge and jury of what life is. Um, you know, and in Life's Edge, I am, you know, I am telling the story of people, scientists, philosophers, and others who have struggled with trying to figure this out. So I, I am not here to, to pass judgment. Um, but, you know, certainly um, there are something hallmarks of life that come up again and again in these discussions. One is metabolism. In other words, taking in food and turning it into biological matter. Uh, homeostasis, that's the stability. You know, like the environment around you is changing all the time, but you're inside the conditions stay stable. Um, easy, a simple example is our body temperature. You know, how do we keep that stable when the temperature is changing outside of us. So metabolism, homeostasis, reproduction, uh, and evolution. It's like those are, I would say, four of, of the really big uh, hallmarks. There are people can may have others that they like. That's fine. But you ask about bacteria, they do all that. They do, you know, bacteria metabolize. Bacteria, like, I mean, if you just look at all the different species that we know of on Earth, I mean, bacteria eat anything, just anything. They, mm-hmm. they, they live off of anything. They're, they're unbelievable. We are incredibly boring compared to the bacterial world when it comes to metabolism. You know, they, they, some of them actually use radioactivity as part of how they uh, generate fuel for their cells. Uh, so, uh, so there's a whole universe of metabolism with bacteria uh, do they evolve? Of course they evolve. They, that's why antibiotics are not working very well. Um, homeostasis, like they are, they, they are able to survive and have survived for billions of years uh, through all sorts of uh, extreme uh, circumstances. 
uh, and reproduction. I mean, uh, you know, you just when you see bacteria spreading on a petri dish, there it is. I mean, the, you know, they like you know, uh, e there are some bacteria like E. coli that, under the right conditions, can duplicate every twenty minutes. Um, in fact, uh, you know, like if they were able to just keep growing at that at that rate, they would we'd be all drowning in bacteria. Cover, you know creating a blanket covering the whole planet. Um, so just so, yeah. So basically that's a long way of saying yes, bacteria by any reasonable standard are alive. Very interesting. And also if for we spoke about the origins here, there also is a lot of thought put into could life have originated somewhere else and then was bought, bought back in some form or the other to earth. And I think you've covered this really well where You've spoken about the uh, experiments that astronauts have been have been conducting aboard the space station to run experiments to see how cells grow on in in low Earth orbit. Were these experiments anything to do with trying to figure out whether these cells or any of life came into, let's say, our atmosphere or came from outside, or was this meant to see how we, as a species, if we had to move out of Earth? what we would need to do? I just needed clarity on that. Sure. So, I mean, so NASA and other space agencies are, are doing lots of experiments on space stations <coughs> to just to just to try to understand how biology works when you leave our planet, um, because you know, we really only know about it here. And so, you know, the just the the physical conditions, even in low Earth orbit, are very different than on Earth, and so that may lead to all sorts of different changes that we don't really understand. Um, and so, you know, these experiments could hopefully shed some light on that. Um, you know, what what happens to our bodies on a cellular level when we are out in space? What what happens to our microbiome? You know, we are home to trillions of bacteria. We depend on them and, and our relationship with them to stay healthy. What if some species starts multiplying out of control in, when you go out into space? Like that could be a terrible thing. So, so those are the uh, really I would say the a lot you know some of the key questions that uh, scientists address when they try to do experiments in space. Um, but you know they some of these questions uh, can. Uh, some of the, some of their findings can help to address some of these more far out uh, questions about where life began, how it could have moved around. Um, you know, it, it is conceivable that life did not on Earth did not start on Earth. I'm just saying conceivable. Um, you know, you could imagine life beginning on Mars, for example. Uh, back when Mars was warm and wet. And then through impacts, um, material from Mars, you know, rocks and whatnot, there was carrying microbes might have come to and fallen on Earth. We know that rocks from Earth land on Mars. Uh, I'm sorry, rocks from Mars land on Earth. Mm. Probably the other way too. Um, but so we know that. And, and um, so... You, you can at least imagine that Martian microbes landed here and then took off. Um, but, 
you know, to, to really explore that hypothesis, you do want to do experiments um, to understand how microbes sur survive in space, you know, not in, and not just inside a space station, but, you know, expose them to the vacuum of space. And so scientists have done some experiments like that on, on bacteria and other forms of life. And, you know, it's, it's really hard out there. Yeah. It's really brutal. There's a lot of radiation from the solar wind, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything would be uh, wiped out. True. And like you said, there are so many theories there. I don't think we'll be able to get through all of them in the time that we have. But now, fast forwarding back to life has taken off and we are here. But when I say we are here, if we go just back a little bit at one given time, if I'm not mistaken, we had approximately at last count, 12 to 14 types of humans, prototypes, I would use the word as prototypes, because you had the Homo erectus, you had the Homo sapien, the Homo sapien came in later, but uh, you could put the Neanderthal in there as well. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is now that as Homo sapiens that we are here as probably the uni survivors, I think there's been so much of new uh, data coming out where we've been sharing so much with all of them until sometime back we didn't even know that there was interbreeding with uh, Neanderthals but now that's pretty much everyone's quite clear about that right yeah I mean it's 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 literally written in our DNA um, the, one of the really amazing developments in biology in the past few decades has been the ability to uh, rescue DNA from fossils. Uh, Svante Babo won a Nobel Prize for it recently, uh, and uh, rightly so, because it really has completely changed the way we look at life over the past few million years. Uh, and so we have these fossils of Neanderthals. We, you know, they, you know, if you just look at their bones, I mean, you get you you can see that they were very much like modern humans, but different in some key ways. You know, their their stockiness, you know, some of the details of their skull anatomy and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, their culture seemed to be different in some ways from the culture of what we call modern humans at the time. And they became extinct about 40,000 years ago. So, so there was, all that information was there. Uh, and then it turned out you could get DNA out of their fossils. And then um, you could actually like get in the whole genome of a Neanderthal. So you're looking at billions and billions and billions of genetic letters. And you, then you can compare it to living species. And um, you can see that it, it shows that, you know, living humans and Neanderthals, they, they have a, 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 a distinct history. Um, they share, you know, we share a common ancestor with Neanderthals maybe about 600,000 years ago, maybe more. Um, and uh, after that divergence, you can actually see by, by analyzing all this DNA that actually there were several situations where um, people uh, interbred with them. So modern humans, it appears they, they, they expanded several times out of Africa, but you know, the, probably the, 
the main main waves were happening maybe 50 to 80,000 years ago and uh and there were encounters between modern humans and neanderthals there was interbreeding and those hybrid children became part of modern human society because they then had children of their own passed down these neanderthal genes these neanderthal genes are still with us so pretty much everyone on earth has at least a little neanderthal ancestry it varies widely um there's relatively little in africa among uh, Af africans but um if you go to some places in china or new guinea like you can actually get you know a few percent neanderthal so um so we we have we have this this legacy of them and it's likely they were just one of a number of different um lineages of humans shall we say and that was around over the past few hundred thousand years we, we did not have this planet to ourselves by any means um and we probably interbred not just with neanderthals but with others and, um and, but at the same time they're all gone and and we are the only ones left um and why that is is uh we we don't really have a firm answer on that interestingly because with so many around and as humans we do consider ourselves to be at pole position now because of what has happened in the past but very interestingly i was reading this article and i don't know uh, uh, again you know you got to keep fact checking everything so i think this is the right time to bring it up because there's an extinct species that buried their dead about 100000 years ago before humans so when we talk about culture and we talk about emotion earlier we were talking about consciousness this seems to be quite unique in some way to life because i do know that there have been instances of animals mourning uh, the loss of a dead one uh, somehow we tend to keep this quite unique to humans but that may not actually be the case because this particular emotion or emotions generally seem to have uh, moved from one species to the other as well along with life yeah so in in life sage i i write about uh in part of the book about about death you know and and you know if if we're going to understand what what life is we also along the way have to understand what death is and it is interesting to to ask well okay um we think we can recognize death um so can can other species and it seems like at least some of them can it seems that chimpanzees and and some other primates they they behave differently around uh their dead kin and then then if they're just asleep or alive or something like that uh and there have been these reports with elephants for example where there's there are these behaviors that if you look at it you might you know it's 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 not unreasonable to suggest that that's mourning that they they recognize that someone is that an an in or another animal that was close to them they spend a lot of time with is no longer with them um and so uh so that doesn't seem to be limited to our species um but you know th there aren't any other living species that will actually you know ceremonially bury their dead or, or you know have perform some sort of ritual so that has long been 
sort of thought of as something that is the example of something that humans do that other species can't, and that it says something about our minds. Now, uh, that has been uh, challenged recently by uh, scientists who have been uh, exploring a cave in South Africa where there are thousands of fossil bones of a ancient human relative called Homo naledi. Um, in a lot of ways, and it, it, it would have been about you know the size of, say, a chimpanzee and had a very small brain, chimpanzee-sized. Um, it's a very, you know, it, 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 se it seems very primitive. Um, you know, it had long arms. It looks like it was good at climbing trees. But it, these bones are in this cave, and they are not just in a cave. They're like way, way, way down, down, down in deep, deep chambers. And um, these scientists have now made a very controversial claim that it looks like these skeletons were buried, that they were actually, they were brought down there, <coughs> and then other homo naledi dug a hole, put them in, covered the hole over, and then on top of that, made engravings on the wall. So these Whoa. are very, yes, these are very new claims. Um, homo naledi might have lived 300,000 years ago, maybe 400. You know, it's not really precise yet, but long before, you know, really modern humans. Um, they're not our ancestors. They're just another branch on the, on the human tree. But, you know, these are such extraordinary claims that um, a lot of uh, other scientists say, well, you're going to have to do better than that. You know, they need, they want more data. They want more experiments. They want more, just because these are such controversial uh, uh, claims. So, so the jury is definitely still out. Yep, like you said, they need extraordinary evidence as well now. And getting to your uh, your concept of if we need to understand life, then we do need to understand death as well. And I think uh, for the first time I read about something or got to know about a particular uh, situation where people can lose sense of what it feels like to be alive without actually dying. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, um, you know, I, I think I, I talk about this in the book that there is this, this condition where people actually believe that they are dead. Um, and, and I the reason that I talk about it is because um, we tend to think of life and death as sort of kind of objective uh, conditions that we just recognize um, through just, you know, rational observation. Um, and that's not actually really what our relationship with life and death is like. We, we, we seem, our brains seem to be very tuned to recognizing the signs of living things. For example, uh, to, 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 when something is moving around, our brains will respond quickly and differently if it's an animal moving around versus just, you know, a rock or some, something that's not biological. And, you know, that makes, you know, there's a, that, that makes a lot of sort of, a lot of evolutionary sense in, in the sense that like, you know, um, y you wanted to be 
constantly on the lookout and being able to respond very quickly to predators. And you don't have time to be like, hmm, there's some, I, you know, there are some, there's a pattern of light there and the, and the, and the colors and stuff are moving. And let me think about that. Does that look like it might be, you know, some sort of living thing? And if it is a living thing, is that a predator that I, you know, and so I like, there's no time for questions. It's like, you know, if, if, if a leopard is charging at you, you want to just run. Uh, and so, so we have these sort of, you know, uh, circuits for recognizing biological activity. Um, and we also like have our own sense that we ourselves are alive. Um, and the, we, a lot of the sense, the sensory information that comes into our brains is not just what's coming out, coming into our eyes or in our ears, but it's like our internal state all our organs, our muscles, and so on, they're constantly sending information up into our brains. And like, here's our thing, here's how things are going, you know, and, and you know, and things are going well, or there's a there's a pain, or you know, there's all sorts of different things that are being processed by your brain for, about your body's internal state. So when you feel alive, you really are feeling alive. It's not, you know, when you know what it means, when you know what it means to be alive, I would argue, well you know what it means to feel that you're alive. And these people who think that they're dead, they really illustrate that because, you know, they are having lesions or some other disorder that disrupts their brain's uh, circuits for monitoring their own in internal state. They're not getting, it, it appears like they, they're not getting that information. And so their brain is like, well, if I'm if I'm not feeling alive, then I must be dead. It's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a surreal, fascinating, and terrifying condition. It's very rare, but you know there are many many case studies of it. Um, so it's a real thing, and and I find it fascinating. True, and I guess with the brain as well, is what the brain is doing is continuously updating information and then probably predicting what happens next to give us a more realistic uh, view or a realistic feeling of of what is happening in the present but are we ever there because as humans what we see around us and that's as far as our reality is concerned it's just our brain continuously upgrading what it sees finds a pattern that is familiar keeps it if it's not familiar, it loses it. You spoke about evolution and why we needed to do this because we just had that split second to escape. I mean, and humans even more so because we did not have any defense mechanism before we could even come up with any uh, uh, with any tools. So for us, it was even more important that we had to make these quick judgment calls, which were to an extent based on something predicting what reality was going to be like in the future. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, um, a, a lot of neuroscientists uh, look at brains as prediction machines. Um, th that they 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 are making predictions about you know how the world works and what the best course of action would be, and then they're just constantly updating all of that as new information comes in. Um, but that's true. That's not just true for people. I mean, that's true for earthworms. That's just, I mean, that's, it seems like it's a general property of brains and nervous systems. Um, and uh, so, 
what's in, it is interesting to think about how humans and the human brain evolves from that sort of basic function. You know, um, you know, some people have argued that the the key to human brain evolution was social evolution. In other words, that our ancestors were, you know, lived in large groups and needed to cooperate to uh, get food and to share food. And so you just had these larger and larger societies that were getting more and more complex. And, you know, you needed to be making predictions about not just, you know, is that leopard over there going to jump on me? But like, uh, if I share some of these tubers that I dug up, is this person going to be nice to me? Uh, are they going to share some of their food when I need it? Um, so it's it's possible that you know we're we're particularly good. Our brains are particularly good social prediction machines. True, and you mentioned as because of this as we needed to cooperate as as groups and larger groups but if we come to the present day this cooperation has definitely uh, we, we've taken it to a large extent and gone global now with so much of information around us with the ability to check and fact check so why do you think there is this division now with what one group of people tend to think and believe and what one group of people tend to think and not want to believe. And it doesn't even seem to be based around fact anymore. Um, I, I, I don't think that this is uh, anything particularly new. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, people have been split about you know the nature of reality for uh, you know centuries and uh to to think that there was a golden age is 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 just not something that uh, i don't think is particularly um helpful um you know we do we, we definitely do have problems with um uh how we sort of share a view of reality these days i, I agree with that and it's important to um, to push back on that. I think, you know, I mean, in, in a way, I think that our expectation of that shared reality is, a, is partly a, a product of modern science. You know, the, 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 the scientific process uh, involves um, sharing, in, sharing findings, being able to argue about them, and then being able to to move forward with a better account of reality, but that none of that works if people don't agree on the basic um, ground rules. Um, and so, uh, so you know, just a you know, what one one example these days has to do with uh, vaccines. You know, how do we know that vaccines are safe? And effective. Well, we, to that involves uh, clinical trials, <clears throat> and you know there there were not clinical trials, you know, a hundred and twenty years ago. Clinical trials were developed through um, the the development of st modern statistics and all sorts of modern scientific concepts. Um, 
they're very powerful. They work very well, but you have to sort of understand the logic behind them to be able to make sense of them. So, you know, people will say like, oh, well, um, you know, the, I, sometimes I will hear people who want to deny that the Pfizer vac COVID vaccine works will say, well, you know, the, the, there were people in, who got the Pfizer vaccine who, who died in addition to people who got the placebo who died. Uh, and that sort of thing is a, is a fundamental misunderstanding of how trials work because, um, you know, the, the, the trial was not actually because so few people die, uh, of anything, uh, over the course of a few months, these trials were not actually statistically designed to detect whether there was a, uh, a reduction in the risk of death. They weren't even looking for that. What they were looking for was, is there a reduction in infection? Now, you can't die of code if you don't get it. But th that you, know, you have to understand with these trials what they were designed for and what the statistics allow. So, so it is, I, I do think it's incredibly important um, that everybody... Um, learn about some of these fundamentals because otherwise, you know, if you hear someone on a podcast saying like, oh, well, you know, these 10 people in the Pfizer trial died, so therefore these vaccines are useless, you are being misled and, and you need those tools to say like, wait a minute, that's not right. This person is misleading me. True, Carl. I think that's, that's really important. And if I could just ask you as a science communicator as well and probably the best science communicator in the world today do we or do you think that when it comes to so we reached a situation of of the vaccines and and people having their view of of reality but maybe we need to do this better and we need to do this more when i say we need to do this i mean people who are communicating science probably make it a little bit more accessible and a little bit more easy for people to understand because as humans the more story we put around it the easier it is going to be for people to understand because everybody 90 percent of the people are not born with the kind of iq or, or logical reasoning or critical thinking that goes into a particular scientific field when somebody follows it so do you also think that as a scientific community and when I say scientific community, I mean everybody who's involved. We also probably, this has been a good time for us to realize that we need to communicate a little bit more and we need to put out what we are doing a little bit easy so people on the street can actually understand. They don't need to really get into the detail of the result, but at least when something this serious happens, it's easier for that person to then accept it. Well, I mean, I, you know, that's certainly, you know, making, certainly um, conveying sort of the, the, the key findings of scientists and the key ideas, the key principles in a, in, in a way that you don't have to be a scientist to understand. I think, I mean, that's, that's incredibly important to me. I mean, that's certainly what I try to do every day. Uh, and so it's certainly important. Do we need to do that more? I, you know, honestly, like I, 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 I feel like um, I just, to me, you know, these days it feels like there are a lot of arsonists out there setting fires, 
And so to, to say, to say like, well, you firemen need to be like, you need to be just, you know, putting more water on these fires. Why aren't, why aren't you putting out these fires more? I, you know, like, obviously like, you know, the, 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 the firefighters need to put out the fires. That's their job. But maybe, you know, maybe the problem is that what are is all these arsonists? <laughs> I mean, mm. there, you know, there are just, there are people who are just you know, every day are, are, are promoting nonsense about things like vaccines, things like global warming. Um, they are actively doing it. Um, and they're, they're making a good living doing it too. And, um, so, you know, I, 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 um, could we do more? Sure. But I think that that's kind of missing the bigger picture. True. There has to be, there, it has to start somewhere and I think it can be inculcated, especially the way the way I look at it is it just needs a little bit more literature, it just needs a little bit more to be accepted as well. And you were mentioning earlier as well that if there is a particular theory and we need people to either follow it, then you need proof. In this current scenario that we've just been through, I think there was enough of proof as well. Right, because there was no, I mean, what was the alternative? You know, so when you talk about, when you talk about these kind of habits, you have to logically think of it. But anyway, getting on to where we were just before this, I think I, I would like to know a little bit more about a very interesting story, if you can share with us, about James Forbes, who boarded the ship in England in 1765. He sailed for... Bombay, which was Bombay at that time, Mumbai, which is Mumbai today. And why did you why did you want to tell us that story? What what was so special about it for you? So um, Forbes, um, as you know, in his work um, for one of the uh, British companies that was um, colonizing India at the time would travel around the subcontinent a lot and um and he he would you know draw pictures and take notes and he returned back to europe and published uh books that were um quite well received because to you know british people here was this colony that was obviously they were extracting lots of resources from and getting very rich off of but they nobody really knew what it was and so this was almost like a you know a virtual tour uh and there's one story in there that um that was actually quite influential which was this experience that Forbes had um where the story that he that he got about about um a British uh, hunter who, um, who you know, th it was sort of beset upon by some. His camp was sort of beset upon by some monkeys. He he shot one of the monkeys, and the other monkeys seemed to be very um, upset. At least that's how he saw it. And then he actually just essentially returned the body um, of that dead monkey to the troop, which then took it away. Charles Darwin was very struck by this story. Um, other n European naturalists were struck by it. And um, this actually kind of led to this, I built up this idea that maybe um, 
humans are not the only ones who feel grief at at the death of a close individual. Um, so that that's a very early uh, example. Um, you know, I, I should say that, like, um, you know, it, it, obviously, like, everyone around the world has had their own histories and cultural histories of experiences around life and death and what it means to be alive and so on. Um, because I was focused very much on sort of um, how modern science has has looked addressed these questions when I look I you know I I, I tend to be um, highlighting you know more sort of European or American roots of all this than other cultures like India for example um, that's not to imply that um, that somehow people in India have no <laughs> thoughts or experiences about any of this um, and you know, I, it's just, uh, that was that in order to sort of carve out, you know, a manageable, um, chunk uh, of, of work as a writer that I felt that I could, I could really take on. That was the approach I took in the book, but I just want to kind of make that clear for any readers. True. And thanks to you, we also now have the third state between life and death, which is uh, cryptobiosis, right? Yeah, cryptobiosis is really fascinating. Um, uh, you know, we, I, I'm fascinated um, by these um, conditions that really challenge our simple binary of life and death. We think that, well, what is life? Well, it's the, it's, it's everything that isn't death. And what is death? Well, it's the end of life. And that's, you know, that's it. But the fact is that many animals, plants, especially microbes can, um, go into, uh, um, it, it's not, it, you could call it like a state of suspended animation, but that, but that doesn't even really get at just how amazing it is. Um, essentially, uh, like take, take for example, uh, and there's an animal called a, a tardigrade, sometimes called a water bear, um, barely visible to the naked eye, lives in soils and, and, uh, water. Uh, it, uh, it can actually you know, withstand droughts and other harsh conditions by going into this cryptobiosis state for decades, maybe centuries. Uh, and what it does is it actually alters its own cells. It, it creates proteins that have the, some of the properties of glass. And so they basically encase their DNA and their essential proteins and just lock them into place. And they can withstand radiation. They can be sent into outer space. They, you can pretty much do anything you want to a tardigrade once it's in this state. And then <laughs> when the water returns and when conditions get better, the glass goes away. The DNA starts to uh, be used to express proteins. The proteins start to carry out reactions. It basically, like, it's just the way it was before. It wasn't dead. It definitely wasn't alive. It was something else. This is this is really so interesting. This this particular state of cryptobiosis, like you said, this is very interesting. And so, when you come out of that state, 
or for you to come out of that state and i'm talking about a living being you also cover something that's called the it it uh, is it the atp molecules that are needed to push or give a real pump back into the living system for 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 us to get a metabolism going again is this connected to this particular state or is this something else that i'm trying to connect well atp uh is the fuel for all of life um and you know it, it it's probably like when life began on earth it used atp you know there's 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 energy contained in 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 the molecule that were that our cells use to um to power chemical reactions um uh, to so that we so that our cells can do things that you just wouldn't see in ordinary matter uh and so sorry what i meant was for for this particular uh, species to get back from this third state was there an enhanced quantity of atp that was needed or it comes in all together you know i don't i have not seen uh studies that look at the atp production that comes about when cryptobiosis is ending it's an interesting question um but you know the atp would be preserved by in this sort of protein glass i was speaking of it just sort of gets locked into place and protected it just doesn't do any it can't do anything because uh you know the what you know another another important uh thing about all this is that you know like water is really essential for a lot of these reactions to take place um and in something like a tardigrade the water disappears and actually the water is actually replaced by the these other substances so so the atp is is still there but just can't do anything it can't it can't react uh to 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 yield the energy that you need for these processes and then it just can start up again once the tardigrade comes back to life right now for these for the for the different species that you cover and that you have studied or the ideas that you have as far as life is concerned it's it's such a huge and vast topic or subject and obviously for us to even be having this conversation and reflecting or introspecting onto what we are doing here the fact of intelligence does come into play and what according to you is intelligence is intelligence has intelligence led us to what we are currently doing right here right now or would i say for example the ultimate species that finally survives everything is the most intelligent species though it may not have gone technologically forward um so you know intelligence as a concept you know uh, emerged in the 19th century 20th century on um, when psychologists were trying to um judge how people performed certain kinds of tasks tasks that were deemed in places like England to be of the most value uh and so so it's a it's not a it did not have its beginnings as some sort of pure abstract notion you know it was very much a cultural artifact and so that makes 
talking about intelligence very problematic because of what we how we then try to define it um nevertheless i mean i i think there is still a value in talking about it um uh, you know i would say that you know one general way that people have come to talk about intelligence is um sort of complex cognition in other words being able to um to look at the world around us and to then be able to take that information to make a plan, to solve a problem, uh, things like that. Um, but you know, if you define it that way, um, then humans are, are not unique in having intelligence. Animals are intelligent. They, solve, they have problems to solve. They solve them. And in Life's Edge, I actually argue that, you know, you can look down to very, quote-unquote, simple life forms uh, and see an intelligence in them. Um, you know, you need to, you need to, uh, if you are alive, you need to be able to get around in the world. You need to be able, you need to, be able to get food. You need to be able to get away from danger. In other words, you need to do, you need to respond to your environment better than random. Um, and one example I give is these things called slime molds, um, which you may see sprouting in the, from the ground in a walk in the woods. They're basically like giant masses of protoplasm. They're sort of like these cells that kind of join together into these networks uh, of uh, that inside of which proteins flow around. And they can do all sorts of amazing things. They can solve math problems. <laughs> they can they can navigate mazes. Yeah. <clears throat> they don't have nervous systems. They don't have brains, but they can do all these things. All these things that you would think are you know a form of intelligence. So you know I I would say that um, when we when we talk about intelligence, we tend to be talking about how do people do on an exam. I would say that. We, it's more fruitful to think about how living things make decisions about how to survive. And, and in, in that respect, all of life is intelligent. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen, the, seen that video on the ant colony that they uncovered, uh, they kept digging, and there were these scientists that were pouring in some liquid so they could isolate the actual uh, channels that the ants were using. And it was just unbelievable. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you're just thinking about an ant, a single ant, and then you're thinking about an ant colony. But here you've got not only a city, you've got a metropolitan city with channels and, and blobs. It is just amazing as to what were the ants actually thinking when they were when they were doing it because the end product was it does ask you questions or you do question yourself about intelligence and the purpose of it uh, yeah i mean so so um yeah ants uh definitely uh are a, a great example of intelligence that works in a way that we're not familiar with so ants do have each of them does have a brain but it's just you know tens of thousands of neurons as opposed to build the, you know, whatever it is, 80 billion neurons or something like that in the human brain. 
So just a tiny little smidgen of, you know, processing power in each ant's brain. But if you combine thousands of ants together, they can collectively solve problems. They can they can build these incredibly uh, intricate nests. Um, you know, one you know, e even more remarkable in some ways is sort of how they move together collectively. Um, so you you can see these mm. videos of ants that they 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 are moving across the forest floor, and they need to get across like a large gap. And basically, what they will do is they will the ants themselves will some of the ants will m turn themselves join together and form a bridge that the other ants can use to walk across. Um, it is. And, That's and amazing. There's nobody gets none of the no individual ant gets a message saying like, okay, you need to you're going to be making helping to make the bridge. You are going to go out, you know, two inches from the edge of here, and then you will be, you know, that will be your place. It's all emergent out of very simple rules that each individual ant follows. But out of that... But then if, if, if I could ask you, just sorry for interrupting, but then th wouldn't that be part of, you spoke earlier about the DNA. So does that kind of information or knowledge, is that not encoded in DNA or is there any other way it's coming in from? There is information encoded in DNA and, you know, ultimately what, what you get from these ants that carry that DNA is these behaviors where they are making, you know, cathedral-like nests and building their own bridges and so on. But you would never be able to find a gene for building bridges. <laughs> you know, you might, you mm. know, you will find genes that make proteins that influence the length of neurons and the kind and well the the kinds of uh, neurotransmitters that each neuron can produce and you know just by subtly adjusting those things through natural selection you can produce the, these emergent be, uh, patterns um, that come out uh, you know that they're not in the gene they're not in the individual ant they only emerge when you get these thousands of ants together acting collectively. Mm. So behavior is never encoded in genes. If, if, if that is true, then comes in what we also, or what you also spoke about earlier is this behavior, yes, environment and culture is important, but then we get into hereditary genes or hereditary behavior. Um, you know, behavior certainly is, you know, um, the, the differences in, well, it, it really all depends on what you mean by behavior, I should say. Um, you know, you can look from one species mm. to another and you can see differences in between species. Um, Angle, short temper. Let's just, well, you, just can, you can, you can, look humans. at, then you can look at individuals within a species and say, well, okay. Why are, why do, you know, if our own species, why do some people behave differently than others? Um, and, you know, scientists have done very large scale studies where they look for, you know, genetic variants that are, are more common in, in people with certain kinds of behavior than you'd expect by chance. And you do find them sometimes, 
But mm -hmm. when you work through the math, any one of those genes would have an incredibly tiny influence um, on, on the difference in that behavior. So having that one variant alone doesn't really make much difference. There are, in other words, there are thousands mm -hmm. of genes that and influence behavior, but they only influence, uh, they may, you know, depending on the behavior you're talking about, they may only account collectively for a few percent of the variation that you see what's the rest well it's it's the environment uh and 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 how those genes play out in that environment true and this information that is stored in the double helix so in the dna the agbt where did that come from well um you know information really um you know, when scientists talk about information, um, they're, they're not necessarily talking about it the way that we might talk about it in sort of everyday conversation. It's not like, I mean, there's information in a recipe in a cookbook, but, um, you know, when scientists talk about information, they may talk about, well, um, you know, how much uncertainty about one thing is reduced if you know about another thing. Um, so, um, so, you know, it's the nature of chemistry that um, if you've got a string of DNA and certain kinds of proteins that you can uh, make RNA or you can even make a protein out of that stretch of DNA. Now, whether that protein mm. does anything that, that, you know, affects the behavior of an organism or, you know, improves its fitness, that's a separate issue. Um, but, you know, we have, there, there are lots of, you know, but new genes um, with functions, you know, are evolving all the time. Um, you might, for example, you know, we have hundreds of genes that make uh, the receptors uh, on the neurons in our noses that help us smell. Um, those new genes in that case come about because as DNA is being copied, um, the one olfactory receptor gene might accidentally get duplicated. So now you have two copies. And then later, initially, like they both are making the same receptor, but then mutations arise. And now one, the second receptor gene is a little different and makes another the receptor is slightly different. Um, that might be really helpful if it helps you to smell something you couldn't smell before, or it might not matter. Um, and so, uh, you know, in addition to a lot of working copies of these genes that help us smell, we we actually have a lot of copies of these genes that don't do anything. They're 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 uh, they're broken. They they acquired mutations and made them stop working. But that's all right because we didn't really need them. <laughs> so they're still in our genome. You can just mm. you can they're they're right there. So um, so so the way that gene new genes arise and gain function, um, it's a constant process, and and it's a um, but you know what the outcome is is different depending on uh, the situation. Mm. And putting all this together, of course, is the life form that you and me and everybody is, is talking about and trying to figure out then 
do you agree with the nasa definition of life which is life is a self sustained chemical system capable of undergoing darwinian evolution is that what you think is the right way we should be approaching this yeah so that is, that is maybe one, you know one of the most uh, influential or popular uh definitions out there um it was a group of scientists who came together for nasa at a meeting uh just to talk about looking for life on other planets decided they needed a working definition and that's what they came up with um and it's certainly elegant but <clears throat> but you know scientists <clears throat> since then have pointed out um problems shortcomings and um you know um viruses for example are not alive according to that and you know that's i think that's kind of problematic because you know you can't just somehow set viruses aside as having nothing to do with life um so uh i i but i don't think that as they are as they argue in the book i don't think that we'll really make much progress bickering about which definition is better than another and which is the best definition i i i what we need is a theory of life in the way that we have say a theory of superconductivity how is it that under certain conditions matter takes on certain unusual properties so we have a theory of superconductivity uh, we don't have a theory of life and and once we do then i think the definitions will be trivial right and being involved in the scientific field with the scientific community uh, doing it yourself uh, researching and putting out stuff that you want to as well as being such a eloquent communicator to people listening to you and when i say people call i mean it could be a student who's just 10 12 14 15 20 years old and listening to this uh, conversation that you are putting out if you had to pass a message on to everyone what would that kind of a message be in the current environment that we are in because a lot of us at the age and stage that we are are going to find it very difficult to think any other way but i think there is a generation out there who will be much more influenced by what you have to say and i specifically want you to address that generation uh, what would you want to what would you want to tell them as far as tools or tips on how to think right because i know university schools and colleges teaches everything but one aspect of life that nobody teaches us is how do you think right and why don't you tell us how you want all of us to think right <laughs> um i i i i don't think i can be that presumptuous i mean i i would just encourage young people to to um to get to know uh the natural world i mean it's very tempting to just stay on our phones and our computers but um we are surrounded by an astonishing planet full of millions of species um which uh each is astonishing in its own way uh and you know we we there's so much that that uh so many more surprises that are, are left to be discovered about them and you know our planet is just one of uh one of many 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 planets um that are you know or, or orbiting stars uh and in in this vast remarkable universe and so i think you know if if people you know open themselves up to that 
surprise and that wonder i think they it's a it's something that will you know benefit you for the for the rest of your life does that mean that you become a scientist or maybe you know perhaps perhaps it's just you can't imagine you know doing anything else but you know um understanding how the ocean works or um or or maybe you want to use that knowledge to to help people to to save lives by figuring out how to cut down on air pollution which kills millions of people every year um but you know you don't have to be a scientist i'm not a scientist um to appreciate these things and to let it have meaning in your life um i think you know i think we're all entitled to uh to have access to all of this so i guess that's what my message would be right and to everybody listening i definitely have read your book called uh, the life's edge and truly it was absolutely amazing there's so much of new information in there and the way you've plotted it where you've gone sequentially giving live examples of not only thought processes but how thought processes change what happens after that and i think we spoke about a uh, few of the cases earlier so i definitely would recommend anybody listening to this if you've inter- if you've enjoyed this i'm sure you have you definitely need to pick up a copy of life's edge it's available here in india as well on amazon if it's something that you like to do online or through a bookstore but once again uh, carl it's been such a pleasure speaking to you and from everybody here in india on indian genes thank you so much for your time your patience and i just hope if we can ever do this again i just hope you you decide and come back and speak well, to us again carl thank you very much uh, thank you so much for इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कॉन्टेंट